morning, everybody. Thank you for coming out and being part of the community, hopefully a community of faith, hope, and love. I um, want to share a funny story with you yesterday. I was marrying a friend, Tom Shaw, part of our church. Um, went out to marry Tom yesterday. Tom was getting married at a very nice place, 90 Acres, if you know 90 Acres. And uh, drove out there and um, had one of those moments where you're like, hmm, I'm getting a little old and it's hard for me to see my material, right? And some of the marriage stuff is in a really tiny little book. And I got there and I said to Joan, oh my gosh, I forgot my reading glasses. I'm not going to be able to see what I'm supposed to see. And so I felt really awkward and like a loser about that until I realized that the reason I forgot my reading glasses was in, they were, they were in the suit pocket uh, top. My, I forgot my suit jacket um, at 90 acres, which they don't let you in the door without a suit jacket on, right? And then to even compound matters and make it worse as I was in the parking lot going, what a moron, what a rube, who would do such a thing? I was standing next to Tom's sister in the parking lot, um, embarrassing myself. So there you go, just to kind of humanize a little bit of, of John Eisman for you. That was my day yesterday. The only thing that made it better is my friend and your elder, Reed Klozeski, was there wearing a blue suit that, had the, that fit me perfectly. So... <laughs> Reed looked like a slob sitting out in the audience. I look like a million dollars. Isaiah's great prophet, or Israel's great prophet Isaiah, he had prophesied that when the Messiah had come, his arrival would bring with it for those who were waiting for him, it would bring with him, he would bring with him a new way of seeing things. That people that had expected him had been looking for him, they would begin to see their world, they would see him, and they would see their world with a term that Isaiah coined that we still use today. Most of us didn't know it where it came from. But he said that they would begin to see things eye to eye. And so in this series, where we're now kind of drawing this to an end, um, next week will be the last week, and you don't want to miss next week, because next week we're going to take the individual building blocks of this worldview that we've been building and kind of tie them together. Kind of uh, then, you know, how should we live type of thing. That's next week, right? But what we've been trying to do over these weeks is acquire the worldview of Jesus, how Jesus saw things, right? To see things the way he saw and sees his world and our world. That's been one of the, the underlying premises. And the other, of course, is that we would begin to understand and, and, and why, understand why our friends and, and neighbors and some of our family members make very different judgments about things in the world and in their lives, right? They see things differently. And the reason I want to understand that is I want us to, to approach our friends and neighbors differently because there are a lot of people trying to sell you things. There are a lot of people trying to get your votes um, that are trying to take our different views and use them to inspire hatred and discord, some even violence, instead of the worldview that Jesus was promoting, which would end up in a world that was full of understanding and love. Now today, I'm going to talk about the final kind of piece of the worldview puzzle, at least the, the, you could be up here forever, but the substantial piece in my mind. So I want, I want to just back up quickly. Here's what we've seen so far. We've looked at this concept of worldviews. Everybody has one. What is it? It's just the way that you see the world, the mental grid through which you understand what's happening in your life. Your worldview, the way that you see things coming at you, right? Your worldview is the reason you make every decision that you make in your life. Your worldview is super important because your worldview determines how you act, the direction you take, 
Ultimately, your worldview is responsible for the destination you wind up at. All tied in the way that you see things, the way that you see the world, the way you think the world works. And so we laid the foundation of Jesus' worldview with four words, in the beginning God, right? We talked about the proofs of God that exist, that it's actually, it takes more faith to believe that God doesn't exist than it does to believe that he does exist. We looked at some of the causes that... um, um, the first movement cause, the intelligent design cause, first cause theory. Hopefully we put forth a pretty good case that it takes more faith to believe that God doesn't exist than he does. And if you were made by God in the beginning, that means you were designed, as he said, in his image, with inherent dignity, because you're made in the image of God, you were made on purpose and you were made for a purpose. It's not just random. Then we went on and we started talking about um, absolute truth. In most of the contemporary worldviews in which you and I live today, that concept of there is an absolute truth, right, that's become antiquated, especially when it comes to things like moral truths, right? Truth has just become a subjective thing, not an objective thing. And so we looked at the mandatory existence, even in worldviews where they say there is absolutely no absolute truth. That's when I told you, ask them if they're absolutely sure, because there is, every worldview claims some amount of absolute truth. We understand what the, pro- we understand what the problem with our world is from Jesus' perspective. Jesus looks at the world, and he discerns the same thing that every worldview does, that things are not the way they should be. But Jesus talked about um, the diagnosis in a very unique way. For Jesus, the problem with the world was not out there somewhere that, that, that we need to fix this or that or them. The, the problem with the world, Jesus would say, is in here. It's in me. It's in you. We all have this brokenness. The Bible refers to it as our nature, our sin nature. All of us have this desire innately kind of in our DNA now since the fall, we always want to kind of be our own gods and and choose our own ways, decide for ourselves what's good and what's not, what's right and what's wrong. Actually, you see this played out in many of the worldviews today. And what Jesus would say is the reason you see the mess out there is because you've got a lot of messes in here. I had Dr. David Emanuel come out. He talked to us about the Bible. The goal was to see the scriptures the way Jesus did. He saw them as true and factual and authoritative. And last week, after looking at the nature of man and our brokenness, our propensity, right, to to hurt one another, right, last week we looked at the nature of God. We talked about how God is a God of love, which everybody believes, but that also, if God is a God of love, he has to be a God who judges. In fact, you would want a God who judges. A God that is, is love and does not ju- judge cannot exist. A God that does not judge is an indifferent God to you. He just doesn't care that much. You looked at how on the cross, uh, you actually see this pure love and righteous judgment of God perfectly displayed. So that's the catch-up. Now, today is the final piece before we put it together next week. Today, I want to talk to you about something that I think is maybe the most controversial piece, and that is how Jesus sees himself. How Jesus sees himself. Now, remember, at the heart of the series is this concept that when Messiah comes, when the Savior arrived, those who were looking for him would see eye to eye with one another and with him. So the question that echoes throughout time is, and heck, 
John the Baptist, right, right, the world does a number on us. And John the Baptist once, even though he was, you know, if you know the story of John the Baptist, he leapt in his womb when Mary, pregnant Mary, came to his mother Elizabeth. John leapt in his mother's womb. That's how well he knew Christ. John the Baptist was the one that was standing in the river, right, proclaiming repentance. But when things went the wrong way on John the Baptist and he wound up in prison, do you remember what he sent his disciples back to ask Jesus? Are you the one? Because this isn't working out the way I thought. And so that question has gone through time. Because life doesn't tend to work out the way we think it's going to work out. Are you, I thought you were the one, but given my recent set of circumstances, I'm not so sure anymore that you are the one. Interestingly enough, competing worldviews, right, they have views of Jesus. The naturalistic worldview, right? That's a predominant one today. All that you see is all that there is. The only things that are actually true are things that I can see, touch, taste, smell, or measure. That's what's true. That's what exists. This worldview argues that there is no God or purpose to life. It's Everything is just coalesced matter. It's a, it's, a, it's a matter of chance. Meaning is what you make of it. Most people, interestingly enough, from this, what we would call scientific maybe, or naturalistic worldview, do you know most of them have a positive image of Jesus? Another prevalent worldview in our world today is this individualistic worldview, which says, look, there may or may not be a God, I don't know, but if he does exist, we can't really know him on any personal level. And thus, in the absence of the knowledge of God, the highest absolute truth is my individual calling, my individual heart, the way I see things. What I think, what I believe, what I feel, that's what's right and true, right? You do you, right? I'll do me. Your truth is your truth. I have my truth. But as long as we don't hurt anybody, that's the individualistic mind view. Very prevalent. And you know, most folks that are part of the individualistic mind view, they have a really positive view of Jesus. You can Google this. It's, 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 it's statistically true. In fact, this is actually kind of funny. Did you know that Jesus is the second most popular person in America? When they poll Americans about historical figures, Jesus Christ is the second most popular person in the United States. Do you know who the most popular person in the United States is? <laughs> Let's not get political, people. But actually, maybe you should, because the most popular person in the United States is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln came in at... Um, 92, uh, 91% popularity. Jesus came in in America with a 90% figure of, of popularity. People felt good about Jesus. Now, one more interesting stat in the survey. Do you know who is viewed even more popular, right? More popular than Jesus or Lincoln for those surveyed? The people that were asked themselves. They have a 93% favorability rate for themselves. Lincoln was, so let's walk it through, right? Jesus is good, Lincoln is better, but check me out, right? <laughs> That's kind of like the American, I mean, is there anything more American than that right there, right? Now, I could go on about the positive image the world has of Jesus. Half of teenagers worldwide, I mean, you can't get teenagers to agree on anything. Half of teenagers worldwide have a positive view of Jesus and say that he offers hope. Only 6% of teenagers worldwide believe Jesus is irrelevant to their lives. That's pretty amazing for a guy that lived 2,000 years ago, right? 
84% of participants in the Jesus in America study, 84% agree that Jesus is an important spiritual figure. So Jesus remains quite popular in our culture. But here's where it gets interesting. The historicity of Jesus may not be in question for almost any Americans, but people are much less confident about the divinity of Jesus. Most adults, not quite 6 and 10, still believe that Jesus was God, about 56%. But about a quarter say he was only a spiritual or religious leader, no different than, say, Muhammad or Buddha. And the remaining one in six say they aren't sure that Jesus was divine at all, about 20% of the people. Among millennials, right, younger folks that are increasingly becoming, you know, the generation that is speaking, um, American millennials, fewer than half believe Jesus was God, 48%. And only about a third of young adults say um, that Jesus was merely, uh, or excuse me, say that Jesus was merely a religious or spiritual leader. More than half of the people in America believe that while he lived on earth, Jesus was human and committed sins just like other people. And so, it's an important question, right? Who is this guy? Heck, it's an important one even for Christians. There was one survey that showed even amongst evangelical Christians, right, people that don't just believe that Jesus is who he said he is, but believe that therefore we should go out and and proselytize the world. We should go out and tell people about Jesus. One third of those people don't believe that Jesus was God. And obviously, from a worldview perspective, this would matter a lot, right? I mean, if Jesus is just a a great moral leader and a teacher, and most other worldviews who admire him would proclaim that, so too would most other religions. Most other religions would cite Jesus as a prophet. Very few deny his existence or his his importance. They just deny that he was divine. They deny his divinity. And if he's just a great moral teacher, then what we take from the teacher is what we like. And what we don't, we don't have to. We don't have to take, we don't have to own, we don't have to do. He's just a good teacher, but I don't think like he thinks. Unless he's divine. Unless, as we said last week, Jesus is who he said he is. He is God in a bod. Because if he is, then we would have to take all that he said quite seriously, right? The way he lived, what he said, how he died, we'd have to take all of that much more seriously, In fact, I'll give you another reason why how you view Jesus in your worldview matters. This week, I became aware of a study that was done by Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, Harvard University. This is not a bastion of conservative or religious thought. Here is the headline of this 2020 study. New Harvard study shows attending church weekly reduces risk of despair and substance-related death. The study pointed out that life expectancy, I don't know if you knew this, life expectancy in the United States has been plummeting in recent years due to a marked increase in these type of despair-related deaths, suicide, drugs, alcohol. The results of the study were, quote, astonishing. Among women healthcare professionals, for example, those who attended church once per week had a 68% lower risk of death from despair compared to colleagues who had not. 68%. Additionally, men who attended worship on a weekly basis had a 33% lower risk than those who don't. Now, the interesting thing is Harvard looked at these stats and called them astonishing. If you go to church, your chance of having a despair-related death plummets. Here's the only thing they couldn't figure out. Why? 
You can go back and look at it. The abstract, they come up with some solutions. They're like, well, maybe it's because it's people are getting together and, I, you know. But they, they don't have a why. I would posit from a Christian perspective, and most of the folks that, that, that uh, were part of this study came, came from a Christian perspective, I think it's an eye-to-eye thing. Because when we gather week after week, I know some of you don't realize, we do this week after week, every Sunday, with great regularity, <laughs> right? <laughs> I just threw that one in there. <laughs> if you want to live, <laughs> right? I would posit that as we gather week after week, when, when we're here, we're reminding each other of something, a worldview that is very different than what is outside of the walls of the church. We're encouraging one another to believe in something that is unusual, that God has come in the form of Jesus and he's not left us alone. That God has extended to us grace, that he's created us in his image for a purpose with dignity, that he loves us and he's forgiven us no matter where we've been or what we've done, that God has pursued us, he knows the number of hairs on our head, He'll never forsake us, and so worry and anxiety can wane. We remind one another week after week that all that we see is and all that there is, and, and that for all of us, life will be eternal. Death does not have the final word for us or for those we love, and one day, Jesus will return. And there will be a new world, a new heaven and a new earth, without pain or tears or death forever and ever and ever. And when you believe these things and you gather often to remind yourself of them, it will give meaning to your life. That suffering and trials can't just snuff out. It'll give peace in the midst of all of your circumstances. Annie just talked about that and sang about it. It'll give you an identity as a son or a daughter of God that's not tied to your accomplishments and a hope for a future that is so much better than today and a future for those you love. And so I would argue... Harvard supports my premise. What you think about Jesus matters. It's the last big piece in the right worldview. So this morning, the question is, if we want to see things the way Jesus saw things, right, so we can live the kind of life that Jesus has for us, how did Jesus see himself? And to get an understanding of that, the first thing I want to do is, is step back and look at the character of who he was, how he lived, because it'll give us a, an understanding a little bit about who he was. If the gospel accounts are true and right and accurate and historical and reliable, which is why Dr. Manuel was here a few weeks ago, to kind of prove that out, right? We know that Jesus is a unique human being of impeccable character. Here's what we have. We have four separate accounts from firsthand eyewitnesses like Matthew and John and Peter and James about Jesus. We have Peter's firsthand account that he likely um, gave to Mark and talked about Jesus. And of course, we have this first century Greek-educated physician, Luke, who set out to write a historically accurate record about the life of Jesus. And what's important to remember is all of these stories about Jesus that all talk about who he was, who he claimed to be, and what his character, what he was like, what his nature was like, all of them were not written 100 years after his birth or 200 years after his birth, right? See, many of you know I go to the beach in Ocean City, Maryland every year. That's my spot. Everybody has their spot. I know you look down on my spot. That's fine. It's my spot. If I came back from Ocean City this summer and said to you all, hey, I want to let you know what went down on the beach this summer. There was a whole 
herd, or, or what would you call a bunch of sharks? It wouldn't be a herd, would it? A school, a school of sharks that came in, and all of these people were trapped on this sandbank surrounded by the sharks. Now, I want you to know most people fled the beach, but not your pastor. I swam towards the sharks. I grabbed each one of them that by that dorsal fin, punched each one square in the nose. You know how they say you should do that? They all swam off. At that point, I put all of the people that were on that sandbar on my back, and I brought them in the shore. Right? I could have come back and told you all that. There would have only been one problem with that story. It would have been untrue. Why would you know it was untrue? Because there would have been a lot of people around to say, that is not the way that went down. I was there. He was leading the charge off the beach. <laughs> right? And that's why when you look at the life of Jesus, these gospel accounts that talk about what he said about himself and how he, how he lived, they were all written within about 30 years of Jesus' lifetime. In fact, most of Paul's letters are written like within 15 to 30 years of Jesus' lifetime. There were thousands of people still alive that would have come forward and said, I saw the guy. I saw him sitting at a bar with Mary Magdalene one night. He's not who you think he is. There is nothing in all of the history of antiquity where anybody claims that Jesus was anything different than, than the gospel writers. Jesus' own brother James, who once thought he was crazy, came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. And so we have a lot of data that records this is who this guy was, right? And they paint this character of this unique individual. Jesus' character is, well, I mean, it's astounding. Think about it, right? He, he walked around like, like no other human being, unconcerned with all of the things that would concern. If you were trying to start a movement, especially a religious movement, this would not be the way you would start it. Think about who Jesus hangs around with. Over and over, the Gospels writers say it to make sure we understand. Tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't just hang around with them. He doesn't just eat with, or heal them. He eats with them, right? And, and, and that, in that century, in the first century, you are, you were who you ate with. Jesus was supposed to be a rabbi who avoids this religiously. Eating with these folks would have made him ceremonially unclean. But also, just think about it from a political perspective, right? I mean, today, right, who you're associated with, I mean, people go through politicians' Twitter accounts to see who the, who, what their likes are and all the, all the rest. Because who you associate with matters so much. But for Jesus, right, in the first century, you, you shouldn't hang around with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't validate who you were if you were trying to be a rabbi, and Jesus doesn't care. By every account, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the underbelly, he's always with them. In fact, the sinners know him as friend. And then he goes and he takes... He takes people that are on the wrong side of the culture, people like the Samaritans that were essentially known as half-breeds and, and were, were, you know, the, the kind of name on the street for them was dogs. In this race-conscious society, Jesus not only befriends Samaritans, he tells a story, he makes up a parable where the Samaritans are the heroes of the story. There were moral outsiders, Right? Prostitute shows up at the home, everybody's going, oh my gosh, get the prostitute away from Jesus. Jesus not only lets her draw near, Jesus lets her weep on his feet and clean his feet. She, she let, he lets her touch him. 
Everybody in the room recoils. Jesus draws her near. The Samaritan woman at the well, some of you know that story, ostracized by her community, can't even go out when the other women in town do, right? She even told Jesus, you know, you shouldn't be talking to me. This is going to damage your rep. But Jesus reaches out to her. The lepers, the permanently, the permanently socially distanced people from everyone, right? Not only does Jesus heal the lepers, he doesn't heal them from a distance, he touches them. How about his wisdom? You realize every other worldview proclaims the wisdom of Jesus. There is no other worldview that goes, oh, that guy was a rube. Nobody. What Jesus did and taught in regards to human suffering, the poor, women's rights, human rights, all the way down through the things that he has influenced, education, science in the modern world, they have all come from the teaching, the wisdom of Jesus. No other person. How about, how about um, the Sermon on the Mount? No other talk has, has changed the world more than the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed be the poor. Blessed be the weak. Every worldview extols the virtues of the wisdom of Jesus. One writer summed up Jesus this way. This is so beautiful. He said, he is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellences. That is, in him, we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible in the same person. We would never think they could be combined, but they are, and they are strikingly beautiful. Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. He reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet an entire trust in and reliance upon his heavenly Father. We're surprised to see tenderness without any weakness, boldness without any harshness, humility without any uncertainty, indeed accompanied by towering confidence. We discover a man of unbending convictions, but complete approachability, his insistence on truth, but always bathed in love, his power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice. That is Jesus Christ. That's his character. And almost every worldview agrees that that's who he was. But this is where it gets interesting. The same gospel writers that within 15 to 30 years, 30 to 50 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the same ones that tell all of those stories that every worldview agrees and says, yes, that was the wisdom and the beauty and the character of this man. Those same gospel writers record not just his character, but his claims. Jesus makes some audacious claims about himself. First, Jesus proclaimed, he claimed, to be eternally existent, that he always was. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was their father, their, their ancient father, I am. And in fact, in claiming I am, he's actually claiming the name God had used for himself to Moses. God had said to Moses, my name is I am. Jesus says, now you don't understand, long before your father Abraham existed, I am, I've always existed. 
right? He claims to be eternally existent. He claimed that God was his father, that he was the son of God. But not just that. It's actually more audacious than that. Jesus said that my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working for this reason. They tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I mean, not only does he claim to be the son of God, he claims equivalency with God. Jesus, at one time, he's talking to one of the disciples. He says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? I mean, not only did he claim equivalency with God, he, he claimed divinity, personal divinity. He said, I, am the, I and the Father are one. I'm God. Jesus claimed, you know this? Jesus claimed that he had the right, the power, and the authority to judge the entire world. Moreover, he says, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's a claim not only that he, he, is, he has the power to judge, the right to judge, but he, he's worthy of worship. He claimed to have the power to forgive sins. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And think about that. Who has the authority to forgive a sin? Right? Like, I mean, if, if, if Jim came over here and clocked Dave, and I went over to, to Jim and said, I forgive you, it wouldn't matter. Right? I don't have any authority to forgive that sin. Only Dave does. So what Jesus was claiming was that every time this sinful nature of yours rears its head, it's me that you've offended. I'm the one that's due the apology. And again, he, was claimed, he claimed he was worthy of worship. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He understood and claimed to be the one that would be able to provide forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Can I give you one that's even more audacious, more troubling? How about this? Jesus claimed that what you decide to do with him how you would relate to him, what you do with him, would be the sole influence on your eternal destiny. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. And so, we get to this very interesting paradox, right? If you have a man that makes these kind of claims, right? I mean, if I ever got up here and said these things about myself, you would have me committed. There would, first you would call the elders, and the elders would call the district, and they would be out here tomorrow, and I would be taken off of the pulpit, and you would never hear from me again, right? And, and rightfully so. I would be delusional, and giving me a microphone would be outright dangerous, but the problem with Jesus is that the man that's making these ridiculous claims is the same man that has led a life like no other man, whose character is not just above reproach, it's beyond reproach. Everyone from every worldview agrees, agrees he's wise beyond belief and beautiful beyond description. Charlatans, deranged people who would make up these kind of claims, crazy people, lunatics that would come up with this kind of stuff, they're not capable of living the kind of life that, that everybody attested that Jesus did. All of the eyewitnesses. 
And yet, if you just looked at this wise and beautiful man as the world does, you would never say this is the same guy that's going to say all those crazy things. And so where does this leave you? Many of you have heard it before. C.S. Lewis explained it best, right? You either have to decide that he's merely a legend, that he didn't exist in the form we understand him to have, but almost nobody believes that. Not even the most secular of historians believe Jesus didn't exist, that he's just a legend. Everyone from every worldview acknowledges his existence and his teaching. Or it leaves you in a position of saying, well, I mean, I guess he was a fool or a, or a lunatic. He was deranged, you know? But if you come up with that, then how do you explain the character? How do you explain the wisdom? Once you run, run up against what he was willing to do, I mean, if he was a liar, if Jesus willingly knew he was lying, would he go to the cross for, for a lie about himself? Would all of his followers who had abandoned him prior to his resurrection and now all willingly went to their cross, would they all, would they all be crushed for what they knew to be a lie? You have to come up with one of those solutions, or you have to decide to see Jesus in your worldview the way Jesus saw himself, that he was exactly who he said he was, that Jesus is God. Now, of course, the final piece of the puzzle on who Jesus is is summed up in the proofs of the resurrection, and, and I talk about those a lot. There's too many to, to, to go into today, but suffice to say that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most provable, attested to historical claim of antiquity. You might remember if you were here on Easter Sunday, I wrote um, to my then two-day-old granddaughter a letter about the resurrection of Jesus with lots of information that one day when she gets a little older, I hope in the face of these other skeptical worldviews, she will read and go, hmm, I can't get past the resurrection. I think he might be who he said he is. Today, after this service, we're going to dedicate my little granddaughter, six months old now, to the Lord. I, I want to show you a picture of God's faithfulness. This is going to be a little grainy, I think. Do you have this, Maggie? That was 30 years ago. That was me and Joan, um, and Joan is holding Courtney. I'm standing right here. That's Pastor Doug, very influential man in my life, taught me a lot about God. And we stood right here and dedicated Courtney 30 years ago to the purposes and for the causes of Christ. And I just want to share with you the faithfulness of God. How, how wonderful is God? that today Courtney will stand in the same place and to the same God. A lot of things have changed in that picture, right? <laughs> and, I mean, maybe the only thing is my wife that hasn't changed all that much. But a lot of things have changed. Everybody's wearing suit jackets, right? Um, who knew there was a stained glass window back there? Don't tell anybody. But I always tell people in the community, um, that's a wonder, if you're trying to reach the 96,176 people that live within one town of our church that don't know Christ, if you're going to put any stained glass window on the outside that faces the street, the main street which people are going by, a Christian would look at that and go, isn't that a wonderful church full of the Bible and the Holy Spirit and the, fi you know, like the refining fire of God? The 96,000 people drive by and go, I think they're sacrificing pigeons in there, right? <laughs> And so a lot of things have changed, but God has not. And so this morning, 
I want to share with you one last thought on who Jesus is. And it's not an academic one, it's an emotional one. Because this is the truth that I want Landry to understand about him too. Truth doesn't change anything unless it makes what they say, right? The longest 18 inches or whatever. The longest 18 inch journey in the world is from your head to your heart. And I want Landry to understand all the academic stuff about Jesus. It's important to base your life on absolute truth. That's why we're doing this series. But I also want her to know the truth, not just in her head, but in her heart. Jesus made one more claim about himself. And I would say it is the most uncomfortable claim he made especially in our culture of competing worldviews, where inclusivity is the highest virtue and exclusivity is deeply frowned upon. Here's what he said. He was asked by, by his disciple Thomas, right? He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Show us the way. It's like a worldview question, right? We don't know. We don't know where you're going. Could you show us where to go, how to go? And Jesus answered him and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Which I know flies in the face of all of the other worldviews. It's so exclusive sounding, right? I'm not ignorant. I know that when, when we proclaim such a thing to folks that don't share our faith, it almost sounds dangerous to them. I get that. The church has been dangerous to people that don't believe like they do over the centuries. And there are lots of religions out there. There are lots of gods out there, and there are lots of ways to them. And I know that the comfortable thing, the politically correct thing to say is, well, you know, this is our way to God, right? This would be the individualistic worldview. I'm glad you feel that way. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. I think this is how you get to God. I know that that would be one way to try to reach people, right? Well, this is what we think, but, you know, you're welcome to think whatever you want. The predominant worldviews today would either argue, look, there is no God and there is no way, right? It's all just matter, and thus it all doesn't matter. I, the other predominant worldview would say, you choose your own way as long as you're sincere with it. There are lots of paths to God. They all lead to God. But that is not what this wise, brilliant, learned, seemingly perfect human being said about himself and the way. Jesus, if he is all the things that we said he is, as crazy as it sounds, Jesus says, I agree with every worldview. There is a human dilemma, but there's only one answer. There is only one answer, and it's me. That's it. Erwin McManus is a pastor out on the West Coast. I've shared you his thinking on this claim of Jesus before. I just love how he explains it. It's, it's really, for me, it's always been very breathtaking. He talks about how when he was a kid, he was growing up, he was wrestling through all the worldview questions and claims. He just had this burning passion, like this, this thing where he was just trying to find truth. And he, he examined all of the other things. He, he wrestled with the worldview questions, right? Are we just like an amalgam of matter where the random chance math all worked out right and two and two came, came together and we wound up being four? Or is there more to life than that? Is there, is there more than that? Is there a purpose to it? He actually said at one point, he went off to college, and one of his college professors had, had made fun of the scriptures for a while, and, it, and, and actually convinced him that there was nothing more than the naturalistic mind view, that it was all just random chance. And he actually said, for a moment, I found a little peace in that. 
because he said, you know, for so long I had been pursuing truth and, and meaning and beauty and to all of a sudden be told it's not there. Well, for a moment, it gave me a little bit of peace, he said, because I didn't want to spend my whole life looking for meaning and purpose if there is none, if it's all just false. But he said he couldn't get away from this feeling, this internal feeling that this kind of fatalistic way of viewing humanity wasn't right. This, this naturalistic mindset that winds up in an atheistic reality where the universe is just a mathematical expression of, of material. It, he said, you know, as I looked into it, it would just mean that I, I, I have no free will, I have no free choice. I'm just matter reacting to data. And he says, if, if that's true, the more I, I reflect on it, he said, the driving force of all of reality, of all of, of the universe is simply math. But he said, if you begin to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, it leads you to a very different conclusion about the driving force of the universe. And that's that it's not math, but that it's love. That God created us to love us. He created us because he's creative. He created us so we too would create. He, he loved us in order that we too might love. He, he created us on purpose with this purpose. And so he began to conclude like this. He said, look... I don't know who you are or who you claim to be. He goes, but here's what I do know about every single one of you. He said, you will not spend your entire life looking for math, pursuing math, but you will spend your entire life searching for love. And that's why the Harvard study's true, isn't it? I mean, your body does better, your health does better, your mind does better, your soul does better when it connects with the truth of who God is than simply believing that you're just a math equation, or everybody just decide what works for you. You see, don't you understand? And what Jesus is trying to say is, I understand that your soul is searching for love, not because he created you, not math. And the problem, and some of you know is the problem is when you're searching for love and you try to find the answer to that search here, it leads to bad places and bad decisions and bad people, and a lot of times enslavement to things. Trying to find that kind of love, that kind of identity and purpose in things and accomplishments and people, it leads to bad places. And that's where religion has found its place over the years. And I know it's politically correct and tolerant now to say things like, well, all religions are equal. But I mean, the truth is all religions aren't equal. I mean, they're just not. No religion. I mean, if you, went to, if you went up to a Buddhist and you, you said that, oh, you know, Buddhism and Islam, it's just the same thing. I think the Buddhists would say, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you're not even just being intellectually true when you say something like that. There are unhealthy religions. There are. There are religions of child sacrifice. There are religions which espouse violence. There are religions of Sharia law, what you see happening in Iran right now, right, with, with human rights and women's rights, show us that all religions are not the same. But the one thing every one of them has always had in common through all of time is that they promise, for people looking for love, they promise a path to God, a way to God. And so they've always been saying, like, you know, for, for example, Buddhism, if you want to find enlightenment, enlightenment, Buddhism will find and give you a path. In Islam, if you want to find favor with Allah, they'll give you a path. 
And because of the world we live in and all the problems in it, because of our worry and our anxiety and our fear of what's coming, and ultimately, like, everybody we love dies and we see it coming for ourselves, ultimately, religions spring up and they try to give us this path. Here's the way you should go to proclaim some kind of absolute truth that exists. And as we said when we talked about absolute truths, we must acknowledge absolute truths are dangerous. You better pick the right one. Religions have used them over centuries to control and dominate people and to get people in the name of religion to do really horrible things. All in search of the same thing, though, all in search of truth and a path to life and love. In the end, they're all created to tell us what it is that we need to do to get God's attention, to find what it is that we're looking for, which at the end of the day is, and we're all searching for the same thing. At the end, I mean, every worldview is still searching for the same thing. Life, joy, peace. And so religions have hijacked that desire for life, and they're saying, you know, you'll find life, and here's how you can find it. You'll find it when you find God, when God has pleasure in you. And so you have to take this path. You've got to work it out. You've got to grind it out. You've got to please the gods. You, you've, got, you've got to get to the God in order to get to the God. You're going to have to do all of these things and, and sacrifice all these things and say all of these things. And then maybe you'll find life. It's this constant idea, right, that God is up on a mountaintop just waiting to see what man would be worthy of enjoying his presence. And you spend your life trying to get to him, to earn your way to him, to, fi to find the life and the love that you're all looking for. But don't you understand what Jesus is saying? I think he would, he would tell you that any God that forces you to earn his love is not worthy of your worship. This is why Jesus is so different. Every other religion has this path, this way to please God, to, to earn your way up to him, to work harder, or try more, give more. But Jesus didn't come to tell us to work harder, to try more. Jesus didn't come to tell us what we need to do to get to God. Jesus came to show us what God was willing to do to get to you. McManus has a line. He says that God is the name we use when we talk about searching for him. Jesus is the name we use when we talk about God searching for us. See, he has this exclusive claim. It doesn't play well in the marketplace. I know it. He's not saying, look, I'm, I, I'm not so exclusive. I don't want you to try anybody else. What he's trying to get you to understand is there is no one else coming for you. Why would you spend your entire life trying to earn the approval and love of a God who's indifferent to you. They don't exist. Any God who's not willing to come after you is not worth you running after. And that's the power and the wonder of who Jesus is. This is the Jesus I want my granddaughter to know. He is the proactive initiator of love. Think this through. If we are, as Jesus says in his worldview, if we are the broken ones in need of God, God does not need us. If God needs us, the Bible should be a story about us pursuing him. But we're the broken ones. We're the ones that need God. He needs to come find us. We're the ones that are lost. I'm the way, Jesus said. You're designed for a future and a hope. Your, your soul knows it. We're supposed to look forward. There is something else. It's not just math and random. No matter how successful you are, your soul is going to continue to cry out, there's something more. 
Jesus is going, I am it. I'm the way. I'm, I'm what you're looking for. He says, I'm the truth. We're all designed for meaning, right? On purpose, for a purpose. Jesus goes, I'm that truth. I didn't come to give you a truth. I didn't come to, to lay things out for you that were true. I came to be the truth. I mean, don't you see right now in a world where you can't trust anybody, everybody seems to be lying to you, don't they? I, I don't know what the truth is about anything anymore. There's fake news on every side. And Jesus says, that's because the truth you're looking for isn't with them. It's not out there. It's in me. I want the truth, the meaning you were created for. You could only find, if you want truth and meaning you're created for, you could only find it in Christ. I mean, think about what we do all the time, right? We take meaningful things and we turn them into meaningless things. And we take meaningless things and we told it, turn them into meaningful things. And, and, it, and our lives wind up a disaster. We do this because we haven't found meaning, which is what we were created for. And Jesus says, that's me. I came to show it to you. And then he says, I'm the life. I've seen your life, he says, and it breaks my heart that you think this is life. You really think I created you to get up every day? Nine to five? Hope that like when you get to 65 or 70, you get another make six, eight years and then that's it? Do you think that's life? Jesus is going, that's not why I created you, and it sickens me that that's the story you believed. I think he would tell you, you're going to feel most alive not when you're rich or successful or powerful, but you're going to feel most alive when you're most fully known and you're most fully loved. I have come, he said, that they might have life, and they might have it to the full. Landry is not talking. Courtney says, she said, Mom, I don't think so. I, I am fairly confident I heard her squeak out a pop the other day, but nobody believes me. The truth is, we know what her first word will be likely, because it's one of the first words every child asks. Why? 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 Right? I remember when I used to try to answer that for, for Courtney. By the time Caroline came along, it was because I said so. Every kid born all over the world, Why? I think it's only when, you, when you're older, you start to look back on that question a little different, right? When you come to the end of your life, you're going to be very much like a child again. All of the what's and the where's and the how's aren't going to matter all that much. It's just going to be a why. I hope I'm long gone when that day comes from Landry. But one day, there will only be one question left for her again. It'll be why. And all of the other worldviews, all the other answers are going to fall empty. What I want Landry to know from her first day to her last day is simply this. The answer to her why question was and is Jesus. Why? Let's stand and close in song.